0: Welcome back to the Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And as ever, I'm joined by my colleague Caitlin Bishop. Hey! This week we're speaking to Edin Omanovich, who is the advocacy director at Privacy International, and we're going to be discussing some of the work that he has been deeply burrowed in. Around European Union aid.
1: <laughs> oh, dude, that's, that's fine. Hopefully by the end you'll get a better grasp of what your organization has been working on.
0: <laughs> I'm just I'm just amazed that you know this is the second time this year that we've had you on this podcast, and it's like yeah. you've done two things this year. Two things, man. That's that. a banner year. <laughs> to be fair, it was quite a substantial output.
1: It was kind of like giving birth. You know? It was hanging over me for over a year that we were working on this report. And then coming up close to launch day, it was a lot of work. And now that it's happened, we launched it. It just feels like basically given birth. Not to undermine <laughs> the harshness of giving birth
0: itself, but You know, for me, this felt like quite a bit of work. Yeah, the moment you started with that metaphor, I was thinking, should I stop him or (laughs) should I just let him go with this one? But this sounds great.
2: Was that our fault or their fault? Because it started with FOIs, right, like a year ago?
1: Yeah, over over a year ago. So basically, we've had like our lawyers who are super sharp negotiating with a bunch of EU bodies, so I think there was 10 of them, 10 different EU departments, trying to get documents from them, which basically described how those agencies themselves were supporting surveillance in non-EU countries. So whether they were providing equipment or providing training or financing the surveillance operations of non-EU countries, basically we were trying to get documents summarizing how that was taking place, but also summarizing some of the protections that go around with that. So for example, if they had been doing any due diligence, any risk assessments and so on that go along with that. And those documents, basically, uh, we published along with three reports which summarized what they show. And as a result, we got together with 13 other organizations to essentially highlight this as a problem and to call for very specific reforms to these EU
0: programs and to the EU agencies which manage these operations. So why are you being so mean to the EU specifically? Like, (laughs) you know, they won a Nobel Prize for crying out. No, but seriously, like this is a global problem. This is something you've been going on for quite a while now, but why, what's with the EU specifically? Yeah, so I guess
1: for background, this is part of an area of work at PI where we're looking at how powerful countries and institutions train, fund, or support other countries to spy. Um, And as you're kind of alluding to, this is widespread by a lot of countries and a lot of agencies within those countries. Now, the EU is by no means like the worst culprit in this you have like for example the NSA and intelligence agencies from China Russia EU member states themselves doing the same thing and um, but we're focusing on the EU because it has a lot of power and it has a lot of influence and this year it's actually renegotiating its seven year budget which basically provides an opportunity to influence change across the EU that will have an impact for the next seven years and beyond then so it's a particularly important time to focus. On the EU from our perspective, if we're wanting to influence change.
2: So, the EU funding these technologies is like, what's the problem with that? Is it, if they've got a budget for security technology around the world, like, where's our concern?
1: Yeah, so I guess it's, I mean, it's going to be different in every country and with every specific program. So, just to provide an example, the reports that we released. Basically, we summarise them in three reports, one showing how a specific EU agency called the European Union Law Enforcement Training Agency was training police officers and security agencies in neighbouring countries in surveillance techniques. So, for example, they were going into countries and seconding EU police officers to train authorities in Morocco, across northern Africa and across the Balkans in techniques such as extracting data from mobile devices in techniques such as advanced open source intelligence gathering, so training officers how to how to hide themselves online and how to spy on social media users, telling them about wiretapping techniques and how they could extract data from telco networks, and promoting the use of malware, which are basically hacking tools, and promoting the use of phone interception technology known as IMSI catchers. So basically going around these neighbouring countries and ensuring that the police officers in those countries are able to spy using these various techniques. So from their perspective, it sounds fairly unproblematic if their problem is that there's terrorists Or human traffickers on the EU's borders. They want to go there and they want to provide capacity and support to the security agencies who are based there in order to enable them to tackle those specific threats. But the problem is, it comes from a very, I think, naive conception of the world and what it is those agencies in particular do and what their function is. Like, the world is infinitely more complicated than that, where you have, you know, bunch of citizens governed by a government who looks after their interests and security agencies who are there to um, limit any abuses taken place by any bad guys. You have countries where corruption is endemic, where security forces aren't there really to protect people and so much they're there to protect the authority of power that's already in place. And we've seen in many of the countries where they use providing this training that surveillance is essentially being used for that. So it's being used to ensure the power of those agencies who are there by doing things like spying on the opposition, like spying on journalists who are trying to expose their corruption, by spying on pro-democracy campaigners who want a different regime in power. So these surveillance tools are essentially risk being used for these purposes so if you look at an example like in morocco where the documents showed they were providing um training in cracking mobile phones and extracting data from it well you know we undertook an analysis a couple of years ago which looked at the laws in morocco and shown that they were overly broad which would allow for the surveillance arbitrary surveillance of activists and others and there is evidence that moroccan authorities are in fact targeting human rights activists and journalists with tools of surveillance. So you can really see how these training techniques risk. And I think it's fair to say, will in some point down the line be used to target people's human rights.
2: What does the line in the EU budget look like for that? Is it just surveillance tools or?
1: Honestly, this is like such a complicated issue because the EU, there's just so many agencies involved and they all have overlapping and different priorities. So, for example, one of the bodies is the one that tries to capacitate countries neighbouring it so that they could get membership to the EU. So, for example, if you're a country in the Balkans um, and you want to join the EU, the EU will provide money for your police agencies to get up to EU standards so that you could join. Or another one is financing the global war on terrorism. So they'll have a specific training technique for and training counter terrorist agencies another one is providing support for border agencies because the eu wants border agencies around the world to stop migration or manage migration to europe um, and so all these different agencies are funding different tools for different purposes so that's why we had to essentially get all these documents from these different agencies i mean this is not unique like it's well known for example in the us that you have different agencies providing these different kind of things and there's no oversight of the entire system it's just different agencies doing different things sometimes
0: competing against each other i I want to come in with one specific and one abstract the the specific is as you were speaking at and as often happens for people who know i was getting really pissed off because of the morocco example you used which is PI and other NGOs in Europe were trying to work with Moroccan human rights organizations, and the Moroccan government's response was to prosecute those organizations in Morocco for working with EU human rights organizations. And now we have this ridiculous and fucking absurd situation where EU funding is happily being taken by The government of Morocco, but only when it advances the interests of the government of Morocco. How can a democratic state or a democratic institution like the EU and its member states fund this kind of work?
1: It comes down to the fact that a lot of this is being done in secrecy. There's no transparency around it. This is like a random EU agency that I think even many EU parliamentarians aren't really aware that exists, let alone what it does. And, you know, if you go on their website, they'll say they provide support for counterterrorism and very abstract things like that to partners around the world. So, but that doesn't provide you any understanding of what it is actually doing on the ground. So that's why you need journalists. That's why you need, for example, NGOs who have time to be able to get this documentation from the EU to actually highlight the specifics, the very specifics of what it is doing, because it's all about the detail, you know. So I think in some cases, a lot of people just weren't aware that these training regimes were happening. Uh, In other cases, you know, these are just agencies. And if their problem statement is to address counterterrorism or to stop migration, then that's just what they'll do. And they'll fight for a budget for themselves to be able to do that. And they're not concerned really about the other implications and the wider implications of their actions.
0: Such as a defense of democracy or the, the gross abuse of human rights. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you're a border
1: agency, you, you'll consider these things. But it's, I mean, to some extent, it's not
0: like it should be your job. But it's not their expertise. And this is where we get to the larger question I had for you, because like you've been working on this for a number of years, and I, I still remember the moment that you introduced the idea for us to be working on this, and you delivered a presentation at PI that. To this day, it still comes to mind on a regular basis because you started with an extract of a video from the TV show Narcos. And the opening of that is essentially a description of how the U.S. government and the Drug Enforcement Agency in particular essentially fueled disruptive use of technology by the intelligence agencies in Colombia, feeding and fueling and living off the drug war. Mm. And so this is a deep systemic problem that's been going on for ages. And of course, the DEA had its primary purpose, just like you say. The EU border agency has a primary purpose to maintain its border. And yet they don't care what they leave behind. Yeah. And and
1: the crazy thing is, just a few months ago, it was revealed that a Colombian army military intelligence unit had been spying on senior judges and politicians using technology that was donated by the US State Department. So it's, it's it's just so systemic that really looking at this issue, like hardly anything has been done about it. So, I mean, for some background, PI has been looking at surveillance technologies, particularly surveillance companies who export systems around the world. Which are then used by various authorities for spying on journalists, for spying on people, for spying on minorities, and trying to come up with uh, policies and ways in which we can essentially stop that or at least limit it or at least provide some protections for human rights um, and people in those countries. What we found in a lot of the countries we're looking at, I would say most of them, is that the security agencies themselves are essentially funded or supported by. Western countries, by China, by Russia, by big institutions, for example, the UN Counterterrorism Committee, in doing those exact things. So if you want to limit or influence the law in those countries, then this is something that you need to understand and you need to tackle. So really, there's two aims. You can limit it. You can try and say, look, you, you, you can't be facilitating and carrying out this advanced surveillance techniques and support for these agencies which are going to use it to undermine human rights or you can also try and use these very systems to improve human rights standards in countries around the world so for example we've been looking at the UK surveillance laws trying to highlight where they fall short which is across the board you know <laughs> like it's absolutely littered with inadequacies the UK surveillance operation so that gives you an understanding of what needs to change and what specific reforms you want to see, what specific protections you want to see. So if you can embed them within, for example, the State Department's foreign human rights facilitation programs, if they're, instead of providing surveillance technologies, surveillance training to agencies around the world, if they're promoting human rights protections, then I think that would be a far smarter move, not just for those countries themselves, but also for those countries who are providing the support themselves. So if you're the EU and you want to do things like stop terrorism in the EU or control migration, then you don't want to create a ring, essentially full of tyrants in your neighbours, where people who live in those countries are, you know, have no access to local services, are plagued by corrupt security agencies. You want to ensure that they have access to accountable services and ensure that they have access to their human rights and promote things like journalism and promote things like an opposition and activists
0: you're forgetting to include the sentence corrupt agencies with all the freaking toys (laughs) because so much of this is about the transfer of toys technologies Hmm. that they use so it's not just the resources and the the know-how but it's also some of these pretty toys yeah totally yeah i mean like so i'm from
1: bosnia originally and you know, I go there every year and multiple times you'll just have a police officer trying to blackmail you for something or another. It's just systemic. Like the institutions there are systems of patronage for individuals to essentially earn money and influence and give that money and influence to people that support them. And this is a huge generalisation. Obviously, there's good people in those systems, but unfortunately, that's the way most countries are. Most countries don't have security agencies or people in government who are there to look after the broad interests of entire societies. Unfortunately,
2: how much of the funding this comes from the EU aid budget?
1: So again, it's like a lot of these systems are funded by different things. One of the reports we looked at focused on what's called the EU Trust Fund for Africa. Uh, so this was essentially set up during the 2015 media focus on the migration crisis. And the aim was that was to use a big pot of money to manage migration from African countries. So I think it's valued at something like €4 billion. Euros. And 80% of that comes from the EU's main development aid budget. And all of these projects are used for objectively good purposes, so providing aid, providing education in rural communities and whatnot. But some of these programs are used for transferring wiretapping technologies, for providing aid in terms of actual surveillance technology that, for example, police in the UK wouldn't even admit to us after many years of asking through FOIA litigation that they even exist, providing those tools to... Border agencies in Niger.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. So, you're saying that through this work, we're able to identify that the government of Niger has a technology that the UK government still won't admit it uses here?
1: Yeah. So, like, IMSI catchers are essentially tools that allow you to indiscriminately identify mobile devices in a given area. So, you can imagine our protests, for example. This would be real useful to cops who'd want to identify all the mobile phones in a specific area. So in the UK, we've been trying to get access to documents from the police agencies to find out if they've got access to them, if uh, they have like codes of conduct, how they use them, under what laws they use them. And they still won't even confirm nor deny that they hold these documents. So basically, they won't tell us whether or not like, they use them and how they use them and under what legal framework. And yet providing those tools to the Niger border force, as well as wiretapping systems and drones capable of carrying out surveillance. And this is really part of a broad system that a lot of people are calling border externalization. So that's where the EU, in response to the 2015 crisis, essentially went, we're going to use this pot of money to capacitate foreign countries so that they control migration for us. So they'll stop people coming to Europe in the first place and just make it their problem essentially. And a lot of this was driven, I think, by the clear uh, rise in populist and anti-migration parties in Europe. But I think a lot of EU politicians who just agreed with them essentially bought into the narrative that, OK, if we're going to protect democracy, we're just going to agree to this. We're going to accept their problem statement, accept their narrative and just offshore this problem to other countries. And you saw that with, for example, when you announced this fund, the head of the council, Donald Tusk, essentially said, in order to protect Schengen, which is the EU's freedom of movement pact, we're going to have to invest in these migration control program called the EU Trust Fund to externalize that problem. The real irony, of course, is that in many countries in Africa, these borders are arbitrary. Like You have pastoral communities in northern Niger that go between borders all the time. You had a freedom of movement pact in Western Africa, which allowed people to go from one country to another. So essentially the EU said, you shall now have this law which criminalizes the transport of people across these arbitrary lines, and we're gonna give you the technology to enforce that. So you have this real irony in that to support the EU freedom of
0: movement, you're undermining other people's freedom of movement. You were polite enough not to include the grand irony that the lines on those maps were drawn by EU member states in their colonialization of Africa.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you look just historically, it's like, you know, I was brought up in Scotland and we have Hadrian's Wall, which separates England and Scotland. And kind of the common idea in Scotland is that the Scottish clans were so violent and so like dangerous that the Romans just built a wall to stop them coming into the Roman Empire. But actually, like you know, they worked with local groups to build that wall because you can't run an empire without um, divide and rule. You have to work with local groups for it. And it was used to essentially manage who came into the empire and who didn't come into the empire. Not to essentially keep savages out, but just to control. And you have to work with local groups for that. I mean, I'm not saying that's what the EU is doing in Northern Africa at all, but obviously there's like lots of very poignant historical
0: examples of this oh yeah and there are are deep deep implications when vast amounts of funding and technical resources are given to chosen leaders within chosen states to serve the purpose of the giver, not the receiver but the receiver is certainly going to use it to their advantage as well yeah totally So can you talk us through where we're at now? So you did these years of research to identify what's actually going on. The budget's an ongoing process at the EU. You launched this work. What's happening now? So our goal is to try and
1: work with members of the European Parliament, with some of the EU agencies who are concerned with human rights, to essentially update these programs with very specific reforms. So we worked together with 13 other civil society organizations from Europe and Africa, and we sent letters to the main commissioners, so the main kind of department heads of the European Union who are involved in this, asking for essentially reforms to the EU systems and the main aid budget, which will ensure that they have to carry out appropriate risk assessment before providing this equipment, before training specific surveillance agencies in these techniques. And that they also ensure that they provide enough funds to support the promotion of human rights protections of rule of law and enforcement agencies within those countries. So for example, ensure that they have capacity to enforce some of the data protection laws that they have in place. Because at the moment, you know, they might have a data protection law, but it's not being adhered to It's In some cases, it might not even be published. So making sure that those laws are strong, and enforced and making sure that those aid funds are actually used to improve legal frameworks such as that and not used for surveillance. So we're working together with these 13 other groups to ensure that the commissioners take this seriously and take this forward and implement those changes as they finalise the next EU budget.
2: Sounds good to me. (laughs)
0: You got a stamp of approval from Caitlin Bishop. Isn't that all? You're
2: <laughs> The approval you've been desperately seeking.
1: So we're focusing in the EU because there's this opportunity for change and we can do stuff like send free information requests to them, which, by the way, were incredibly difficult and I can talk about why that was. But a lot of the countries who carry out all the agencies who carry out this kind of work are completely opaque so one of the i think most interesting aspects that the snowden documents revealed for me was an nsa program called rampart a which showed how it works with counterpart intelligence agencies around the world to train and equip them with mass surveillance tools to essentially allow them to monitor the internet now these are intelligence agencies so you're not going to get this information from Freedom of Information requests. They're not even going to tell State Department or other U.S. agencies that they do this. Like They're just a law unto themselves carrying out this kind of work because it's within their interest. Because if they provide these mass surveillance tools to, for example, countries in the Gulf, they're going to get intelligence off the back of it. And um, so it furthers their mission. But they're not going through like other departments to talk about the human rights risk that might come with this. So it's very difficult to get information from them. And then you have obviously China, which has really kind of stepped up its work with other countries in Africa and Latin America um, in this kind of stuff. So facilitating and financing surveillance systems. And then you have Russia doing the same thing. So if, if you consider like what happened during the Cold War, where you had these large, powerful countries equipping... Other countries in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia with military tools in order to get influence. Well, nowadays, you enforce your power locally through surveillance tools. So what that means is that these countries are now providing surveillance tools to countries around the world.
0: These are these moments where we work in this field where at first you think you're working on the flow of data and you're working on a few technologies, and then you realize you're actually working the domain of the new Cold War. You're working the domain of the spheres of influence for the next 50 years, That mm. whether it's China trying to cast itself across the world or whoever's going to be the president of the United States trying to do the exact same thing like we did, as you say, in the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s. This is a really dark future that's being built. And these governments are just competing with each other to have this influence.
1: Mm. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is, is that the narrative is now for the US, Europe and the Western countries, it's like, OK, China's doing this, so we're going to have to compete. So now if China is providing the authorities in Ecuador with a smart city solution, then we're going to have to do the same and we're going to have to do it in neighbouring countries. So it's going to just a race to the bottom, essentially. So it's something that's very difficult to counter. And again, this is why we're focusing on the EU, because if you are having this global competition of providing allies with surveillance tools, and if we can influence the EU to actually focus on the stuff that will help people, not put them in danger, then we can at least try and offset some of these programs that are being undertaken by the intelligence agencies of the US or China or Russia or the EU member states themselves. Or the UK. Or the UK, of course. So the EU member states themselves also do this, whether it's their like foreign departments or their intelligence agencies, because, again, it provides them with certain benefits. So whether it's getting access to data in third countries or whether it's supporting border authorities so they can stop people getting to the UK. So, for example, we've done a report last year on this project by the UK Border Force called Project Hunter, where they're providing surveillance tools and training for border control agencies as well. So this is outside of the
0: EU. That's incredible. And so tell us like, why this was so hard to do. Like to some degree, it's because it involves intelligence agencies that never have to be held to account, or it involves border agencies and they are hard to hold to account, particularly when governments and and populist politicians are so keen to see something be done here. But like for years we've been working with organizations, whether it's in most of the countries you've identified, such as Colombia and Northern African countries. So we work with these human rights organizations to push back against what their governments are doing yet we just feel like we're being undermined all the time because it's not just what their governments are doing, but it's how their governments are enabled by our governments. And so we have our own fight more locally, as you say, whether it's in the United Kingdom, whether it's in the EU, where we can actually force ourselves to be heard. But this work was some of the most challenging work we've undertaken in recent years. And why is that?
1: So fortunately, it just comes down to the lack of transparency in this whole area. It's you know, up to intelligence agency levels, all the way down to just foreign departments, there's no transparency about it. You have to do freedom of information requests to get the very specific details of what you need to look at. And that's been very difficult. So to give you an example of the EU, we were trying to get documents from this new border control agency that the EU's massively ramping up called Frontex to find out what kind of training they were providing to non-EU countries and what kind of equipment they were giving them. Okay, so last year we said give us documents and by the way this is obviously a massive like simplification. You know, we've got like really sharp lawyers who wrote like very detailed requests asking for what equipment Frontex were providing. So, okay, so you wait until they have to respond to you, they would respond and say, "Uh, oh, we don't understand what you mean by equipment." So we can't proceed with your request. So it's like, okay. So we sat down and then it's like, how do you actually define equipment? And by the way, obviously, they clearly know what equipment is. But you have to play this game. So we're like, okay, let's define equipment. So we looked at, there's something called the EU export control um, list, which defines what equipment is like very detailed, like, you know, in technical language. So we gave them that, which is, was about, I would say like a hundred words defining what equipment was and um, still wasn't good enough. So came back and said, it's not specific enough. You need to tell us exactly what you want by equipment. And again, had to sit down and be like, okay, like we're going to have to add more detailed things into what equipment actually means. So sent that back to them, and again, it just wasn't like specific enough. So it's just this ridiculous rigmarole of trying to get like very specific documents out of them. Um, so if you know, if you've ever seen like Spielberg's film, AI, it's like the tribute to Kubrick. And the wee kid speaks to the blue genie and like he requests wishes from them. But the genie like will not tell him anything unless it's like a very specific, very specific question. And it's just like that. I mean, unfortunately, that's just the process we're up against. And obviously, the EU agencies are some of the, you would think, most transparent. So if you're talking about national member state authorities, like the UK intelligence agencies are completely exempt from freedom of information requests. So how are you going to highlight this as an issue to parliamentarians where we don't know what the issue is because they won't tell us? How are you going to get media interested in this, which would then hopefully inspire action by parliamentarians, by member state authorities if you've not got access to what the actual problem is so you know you need these documents to inspire media interest inspire interest from parliamentarians but it's, there's just a complete lack of access to it,
0: unfortunately and I got to say like there's a reason why I asked that question and there's a reason why I'm so particularly fond of this work and it's because I really want us to look at the deep systemic risks to dignity and autonomy and and what we can be doing about it and it's just it's so tempting to go at the surface level and you know pick on a given company that uh, everybody knows and go after that company and it sails around the world or to pick an evil government that everybody hates and say let's focus on evil government just so we can draw eyeballs to the to the problem but you're not solving the deep systemic problem, which is how are governments across the world, even governments where they can't afford basic infrastructure, how is it that they are able to make use of the most advanced toys to crush opposition and dissidents and journalists and others? And this work is essentially trying to answer that question. And it's trying to answer that question by going after, essentially, democratic countries that are supposed to have these safeguards in place and transparency rules in place to help us to essentially uncover all this. And yet, nonetheless, it's still like it's a Sisyphean task of like pushing the, the boulder up the hill. It is so hard to do this work. It's so hard to unravel this mess that they have created. And it's a legendary mess, as we said in this discussion. This is the old ways that warlords used to be fueled by foreign powers. And this is what's happening now again. And we're going to see this even more so into the future. And so I just, I got to say, like, this is, this is some of the most important work we're doing. Yet it's also, of course, the hardest.
2: Can I ask, this is going to be maybe a bit incoherent and tortured because I've just been thinking about it, but with Donald Trump, fingers crossed, barring disasters leaving office. Is this kind of a reflection, kind of very much similar to the American exceptionalist, make America great again sort of thing? Like the EU is throwing the rest of the world out, like baby with the bathwater style, to preserve what it thinks of as the ideal EU, screw, you know, anyone trying to do their best anywhere else. And it's kind of depressing, I guess, in that, that Donald Trump style attitude it didn't start with him won't end with him it's much more systemic than the kind of surface level scary problem
1: mm, i think you're right yes yeah, it certainly didn't start with him and in some respects you know he massively cut the u.s money that was going to some of these programs not for any kind of altruistic reasons but just because he didn't like some certain countries or god knows why he made certain decisions but you know, if you look at the levels of U.S. security assistance to other countries, it went down temporarily once he came in, to the dismay of many kind of agencies, security agencies, intelligence agencies in the U.S. itself. So it certainly goes well beyond him.
0: That's actually a fascinating point, that foreign intervention by governments is not a party political thing. It's deep institutionalism by governments, whether it's, as you said before, intelligence agencies just doing it irrespective of who's in power, but also arguably it is just a tool of foreign policy. And yet the irony here is that under the Trump administration, they actually pulled back to some degree. Mm -hmm mostly because they resented the idea of spending American taxpayer money (laughs) elsewhere or on so-called shithole countries. Like, for example,
1: if you look at Donald Trump's Muslim ban, if you look at the actual executive order, how it's implemented, and how these agencies interpreted what he wanted from his Muslim ban, what they're saying is we're going to set up a method by which we judge other countries' capacity to target terrorism, so how they deal with terrorism, and if you're not good enough at dealing with terrorism, and if you're not sharing data with us, then we're going to put you on this ban list. So you're essentially forcing other countries to spy on people and to develop these massive systems, which, by the way, the US will fund you to purchase because they're owned and managed by US companies. And if you don't agree to that, then you're going to be put on a travel ban list. And, it's, it's you know, again, it's not only a US thing, like the EU has um, policy whereby if a country doesn't comply with returns, so if they don't send information to EU authorities, which would allow EU authorities to deport people to those countries, then the EU can target you for visa bans and specifically like the leadership within countries. So to stop you and your family from traveling to Europe, if you don't agree to develop these databases and to ensure that the EU is able to deport people back
0: to your country. Jesus Christ. That's (laughs) that's fantastically fascinating and horrific at the same time, where it's it's data intelligence becoming truly the new currency of global affairs Mm. and of foreign relations. This is outrageous. One thing we're going to be looking
1: at next year is, Like a lot of these mass databases that are being spread around the world by institutions such as the UN counterterrorism body and the World Bank, who in a lot of cases, you know, they want every country to have a biometric system, which everyone is enrolled in, because from a kind of statecraft conception, That is just how you shall manage and control people and stop things like terrorism, how you shall control migration, how you shall at the same time allow people access to services. So like it would just fix everything. It's like this great panacea that would just help everyone. Um, And a lot of these agencies have bought into that and they're funding these mass systems. Then you've got these border agencies who have basically just seen it for their own purposes. So one of the agencies we looked at in the EU basically said they were funding this agency in Côte d'Ivoire to develop a mass biometric system so that they could then use it to facilitate the return of illegal migrants in Europe itself. I mean, it might be in part looking after the interests of the Côte d'Ivoire people and the government itself, but certainly it's been jumped on by the EU border agencies to facilitate those kind of things. And you have cases like where they done this when they went into Iraq and Afghanistan and built these mass biometric systems where they've wanted to ensure that anyone going into one of the green zones where you had like US military or uh, authorities in Iraqi or Afghan security department, you wanted to authenticate them using biometrics. But those databases are still around. So the stories of like people applying for visas from US departments and somehow they've got access to their biometrics and decisions being based on that. So, imagine example: you're an Iraqi and you're trying to visit someone in the US. Uh, how are you going to, anyway, challenge the decision that's being made on your back of your biometrics that was collected in 2003? Like you're going to go up to the US embassy and ask them why you've been denied this visa, and they're not even going to know. It's just going to be a black mark. That's been put on you by the Department of Homeland Security. It's like really Kafkaesque systems that we're building.
2: It sounds fairly familiar because Kenya's biometric ID stuff came from colonial rule and is still haunting Kenya in mm-hmm. many ways. Like it, it's not that new of an innovation almost. No, nah.
1: yeah, totally.
2: And you like to think the EU's moved on and things are better and, you know, as a force for good. And then you look closer and you're like, oh, <laughs> damn.
1: I think it's pervasive. It's like, so uh, again, I'm from Bosnia and we have our Nobel Prize winning book called Bridge and the Drina. Um, and our history is essentially, we were governed for hundreds of years by the Ottoman Empire, so the Turkish folk. And then at some point, I think at the end of the 1800s, the Habsburg Empire came in. So you had these Austrian folk. And there's this like, really, it's a fictional book, but kind of revealing scene whereby the Austrians come in and the local Muslim population is just very unsure about what it is they want and what it is they're doing. And so the Austrians have this idea that they're going to knock on people's doors, find out who all the families are, and just put them in a database because they want to know who people are. And you had this like scene where this local leader is just really unsure about what it is they're doing. Like, why are they doing this? It's not something that they've ever come across. Like, that these people need to know who everyone in a certain house is. And, Unfortunately, you know, this was written like decades ago and it's still kind of existing, unfortunately.
0: Indeed. Yeah, I don't usually enjoy conversations with Edin because they make me just want to swear even more so at the end of them. But you've managed to enrage me with this conversation, Edin. And I really appreciate that. Cause now, because it's currently locked down, I have to go back to teaching my son uh how to do math. So uh <laughs> I'm gonna be cursing even more so nice. as we go forward. Thank you very much, edin for no this. Worries. This is um this conversation is just so damn insightful because we get to see the way that the world is ticking um the way it has always ticked and uh what's we're trying to do to stop the gears of this goddamn clock that just always seems to end up badly mm. so uh thank you for this and thank you for doing all this fantastic work. Well, thank
1: you i will say like the documents are available on our website so anyone can have a look at them um and they're really like we went we tried to go through them but there's stuff in there that's just real interesting so i would Poor anyone who's interested in this kind of work to have a look through them and also have a look at some of our advocacy materials, because there is now an opportunity at the EU to contribute towards a substantial change that will help people for decades to come. So any kind of support we can get on that, whether it's through social media or writing to your MEPs and showing your support for the reforms we're outlining, we've been
0: very grateful for. Great. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And as Edin said, you can find out more about this issue by clicking on the links in the description or by visiting our website, which is privacyinternational.org, where you can also sign up to our mailing list to find out more about this work as it's ongoing. You can like and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use, and you can even review it on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter and Mastodon at privacyint, or on Instagram, YouTube and Facebook as Privacy International. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.
2: Okay. Good. Okay, thank you very much everyone. Sure.